Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. You'll find the the insert in the bulletin, um, Luke chapter 3. Wait for the screen to go up. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. In the past two weeks, we looked at the first 14 verses and John the Baptist's ministry, what it was centered on, what it was about, his specific counsel and instruction to individuals. This week, John the Baptist's ministry comes to its fruition. It comes to a culmination. The baton is passed, as, as we'll see even in this text this morning, the, the, the center of attention, the locus of the attention, or to use a modern metaphor, the camera will shift from John to Jesus, and for the rest of this gospel, it will not leave our Lord. And so this morning, we'll be studying John's confession and baptism of Jesus. Let's begin by reading the text, Luke three, fifteen to 22. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he was mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, tetrarch, who had been, Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. John's confession and baptism of Jesus. Now, if you recall, the previous two weeks we've studied the the central focus in Luke's gospel of, of John's ministry was, it's given earlier in the text, he came, verse 3, to all the region of Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John is the last Old Testament prophet before Jesus. He's also the first prophet in about 400 years. For 400 years, from the writing of Malachi till now, there's been silence from God. The silence is broken. Angels are appearing, and, and a prophet of the living God is out amongst the people. The people are in high expectation. This is exciting news. And John is calling on them to come out publicly to identify themselves as needing cleansing, even though they are Israelites. They are sons and daughters of Abraham. They're participants in the temple worship and the sacrificial system. Despite all that, he's calling on them to publicly come forward and recognize their guilt, recognize their corruption, recognize their need of a cleansing that only God could give. And we saw that he got specific, telling individuals, tax collectors, centurions, those who came out, how, what type of fruit they needed to bear. 
And so John, up to this point, has been focusing on turning from. We talked about how repentance and faith is one action you turn from something to something. And we spent two weeks looking at what John was calling on people to turn from. This week, we get the other emphasis of John's ministry, what he is pointing people to. So let's dive in as we look at this in two points. John's confession and baptism of Jesus. Point number one, verses 15 to 20, the culmination of John's ministry. The culmination of John's ministry. And the reason I say that is John's basic message is get ready, get ready, he's coming. Get ready, the king is coming, the Lord is coming, get ready. And that was, that was the quotation from Isaiah that's in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. He's, he's making the path ready. And so here, John is actually pointing to Jesus, who is actually in our text. He's here. It's not get ready, he's coming. It's get ready, he has come. And so let's look at this. First, verses 15 to 17, we'll see John's gospel preaching points men to Jesus. John's gospel preaching points men to Jesus. Now, I call it gospel preaching because at the end of our passage, we're actually in verse, um, sorry, verse 17, No, sorry, not verse 17. Where is it? Oh, dear. 18. With many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. And and the word we translate as gospel just means good news. It's uangalitzamai in Greek. And he gospelized them. John preached the gospel. What is John's gospel? It's turning from and turning to. He, we emphasize the turning from sin. Here, he's pointing to Jesus. Here, he is pointing to the one that we should be willing to forsake all things to turn to. John's gospel preaching points men to Jesus. Now, as John is getting attention, getting fame, getting acclaim, as people are coming out in other gospels, the, the Pharisees say that all of Israel is going out to him, the people begin to ask somewhat understandable questions. Is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one who will come? And uniformly, without any hesitation, John in this gospel, in John's gospel, in the other gospels, absolutely have nothing to do with any such talk. And he always points away from himself to Jesus. So they're asking that question, who is he? The expectation is high. They're questioning, might he be the Christ? John's answer was this. Is simple. I baptize you with water, but he who comes is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So his first point is Jesus, because we know the one who's coming is Jesus. Jesus shows up at the end of this passage, is mightier than John. He's greater than John. John is great. Jesus is greater still. We saw this even in the birth announcements. In, in Luke 1.76, the child, Zechariah prophesying over his son, will be called the prophet of the Most High. So John the Baptist is a prophet of the Most High. But Gabriel said earlier in the chapter, in 132, speaking to Mary, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. So John is a prophet of the Most High. Jesus is the Son of the Most High. John is great. Jesus is greater still. And I want you to think of how significant this is, because in Luke 7, Jesus, speaking of John the Baptist to the crowds, makes this remarkable statement. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. That's, that's pretty high. 
Among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now, why is that? Because none of them had a greater honor than the honor John had of announcing Jesus. So if John is the greatest and Jesus is greater than John, what does that say about Jesus? Jesus is greater than John. And it's probably not a, a challenge for us, but even in the book of Acts, there's evidence that there are still some disciples of John who hadn't moved on to Jesus, and Paul has to instruct them. And so part of Luke's purpose, I think, is to make this abundantly clear. We've seen the same emphasis in John chapter 1, that as great as John was, as faithful as John was, as good as John was, he was constantly pointing away from himself to Jesus. He's called on people to... to, to to confess their sin. He's called on people to repent of their sin. And now he's, he's pointing to the one who is greater than him, so much greater, in fact, he's not worthy to untie the sandal. I mean, that climate, um, when you came inside from walking about, your feet would be dusty, they'd be funky, and the lowest position, the, the most humble position, was the servant who would take off the shoe and cleanse the feet. That's why Jesus, when he gave the disciples the picture of washing of feet, is taking the lowest of lowly positions. Get this, John, the greatest man born of women, is not worthy in his estimation to be the most lowly slave in Jesus' house. Jesus is not just a little bit greater than John. Jesus is, in every sense, superior in every sense, superior. Jesus is greater than John. That's part of John's message. The second, explaining this even fuller and explaining why Jesus is greater, is that Jesus' baptism is greater than John's baptism. Jesus' baptism is greater than John's baptism. And this is where it can get a little confusing because my blanks here, first one is that John's baptism was symbolic. Now, it was a physical baptism. It was physically water. People were coming out to the Jordan, and they were physically getting wet. But that ritual, that rite itself, did nothing, accomplished nothing. People's sins weren't forgiven because they went to the Jordan and were baptized by John. Today, baptism doesn't accomplish anything. You just get a wet person. So John's baptism is symbolic. What, what matters, and when we get this when he's, when he's calling out the, uh, those who come with an insincere heart, you brood of vipers who warns you to flee the wrath to come. John's after the heart. John's after a heart of repentance. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 3.21. Baptism, he's speaking about Noah and, and the ark and the flood. Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. You go, wait a second, I thought you said baptism doesn't do anything. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body. There's an appeal to God for a good conscience. Water baptism doesn't save anybody. The appeal to God, the crying out to God for forgiveness, for a clean conscience, that inward cleansing that God does, which the water baptism symbolizes, is what matters. So John's baptism itself is ineffective. John's baptism is a picture of something else. We understand that. By contrast, Jesus' baptism is actual. Jesus' baptism is actual. The baptism with which he will baptize his disciples, the baptism with which he will send his spirit, is the real thing. It's the real thing. Turn, turn to Acts 11. You understand what, what is he talking about? Jesus baptized with the spirit and fire. Luke, because remember Luke wrote Acts, gives us some insight in Acts 11. 
Peter has returned from his encounter with Cornelius and his household. Cornelius, the first full Gentile convert. And while Peter is speaking, the Holy Spirit descends upon, baptizes them. Peter returns to the Jerusalem council to report this stunning news that the Gentiles are full and co-heirs of the gospel. As Gentiles, they don't have to first become Jews. And in verse 15, Peter says this, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then Christ, if then God gave the same gift to them as to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted the repentance that leads to life. So, this promise that Jesus will baptize the Holy Spirit, Peter interprets that as taking place when the Holy Spirit comes upon the, the church, when the Holy Spirit, starting in Acts 2, comes upon believers. This is a specific blessing of the new covenant. Remember, under the old covenant, the salvation has always been by faith alone, through grace alone. But under the old covenant, faith in, in the God of Israel, faith in his word, trusting in his promises, on that basis, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. No indication that Abraham received the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit's ministry under the Old Covenant was much more short-lived, individual, and specific-focused. So individual people, the Holy Spirit would come upon them for some work of ministry, whether it's building the tabernacle tools. The Holy Spirit came upon the men who were the craftsmen who were making the accoutrements for the tabernacle. Or judges going out to battle, the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And when Saul is made king, the Holy Spirit came upon him. And when Saul was rejected as king, the Holy Spirit left and so the Holy Spirit had an active and powerful ministry under the Old Covenant, but it was a different ministry. For those of you in my Sunday school class, you, we've gone through this. And so what, what, what didn't happen was every single person who was justified by faith, who was saved and forgiven, did not receive under the Old Covenant the Holy Spirit. That's why David in Psalm 51 can ask the Lord not to take his Holy Spirit from him. Now, you, you and I can read that. We can struggle with that because we think... If I lost the Holy Spirit, it would mean I've lost my salvation. No, that's not how it worked for David. David saw Saul lose the Holy Spirit, lose that empowering for ministry. And after he had sinned grievously, he was concerned, what if the Lord does that to me? And that's what's going on in Psalm 51. So Jesus, baptism of the Holy Spirit, and with fire, and we'll deal with that in a moment as well, is fulfilled as this prediction that Jesus will send his Holy Spirit. And the reason why I say that's actual is according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, how are you and I saved? We're saved on the basis of Christ's work, but how is it applied? How, how is it applied? How is the, the death of Christ applied to us? How are we joined with it so that we benefit from it? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in or by or with one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all made to drink of one spirit. According to Paul, you were united with Christ. I was united with Christ. We were joined with the body of Christ, being baptized by, in, or with his spirit. And so 
Christ's baptism of the Spirit is the, is the real one, the one that accomplishes something. How did I receive the benefits of Christ's death? How am I sharing in union with Christ? It was by this Holy Spirit who has come under the new covenant. And so the irony here is I've got that John's baptism that you could see and touch was symbolic, and, and it was. The water did nothing of any efficacy. And Jesus' baptism, which is usually invisible and inscrutable, the coming of the Holy Spirit, sometimes sometimes in the Scriptures accompanied by signs and wonders, is the real deal, is the real one. And that makes Jesus' baptism greater. So what's this fire that he's talking about? Well, I think there's, it means one of two things, and it probably means both. We know in Acts chapter 2 that when the Holy Spirit descended upon um, Peter and the apostles, he descended like a flame or a tongue of fire. And so the fire picture here for the believer, for the one who receives this baptism, is, is a picture of cleansing, is a picture of refining. There's another picture fire can do, and fire can destroy. And, and that metaphor of fire burning gets picked up just a little later in our passage. So I, there's a sense in which Jesus comes to baptize his believers and sends his spirit to baptize believers and to cleanse and purify them. There's another sense in which Jesus is the one who will the end of time, set this world on fire. The heavens are going to be destroyed with a flame. And so it's a purifying fire. It can also be a destructive fire. I mean, look at the end of the passage in Luke chapter 3. The chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. So there's a sense in which one way or the other you're getting baptized by Jesus, either with his spirit or in the judgment that comes, the flood of judgment that comes at the end of the age. He will baptize this world. And that same sort of double usage is used even in Peter where he speaks of the flood washing away those in Noah's day. So John's baptism is symbolic. Jesus' baptism is the real deal. It's the actual one. It's the one that accomplishes something. So that's a reason why Jesus is greater. And then he goes on to describe what Jesus will do. Remember up till now, we've been focusing on who John is, what he's about. Now John, as a witness to Jesus, gives insight into who he is and what he will do. He will baptize with you with this Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John uses a, a metaphor here that probably many of you are unfamiliar with. The blanks here, the point is John is conveying that Jesus will divide or separate and judge. And winnowing, and a winnowing fork, probably not super familiar, is, is the way in, in John's day that they would separate their grain. So you'd thresh the grain, you'd break, break it, and then you'd take this fork, and with it you'd lift up your pile of grain and, and chaff, and you'd throw it up in the air. And if there was a breeze blowing, the wind would carry away the lighter chaff, and the heavy, good grain would fall to the ground. I've done something similar trying to roast my own coffee. It hasn't turned out too well, but, but no, but it was a val- vivid illustration because I got the little, you know, those little jiffy popcorn things and you're turning the crank and you're trying, you know, the whole house fills up with smoke and, um, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. At least I thought it was fun. And, but very quickly, once it's done, you got to run out on the deck and you get two bowls and you pour the coffee, which is now cracked open. And as you're pouring it, the beans fall and the wind carries the chaff away. This is the picture. 
And what it is is of separation and purification. Jesus in coming will separate and divide men. He will identify where people are at. In a sense, Jesus is the litmus test. And again and again and again in the Gospels, we see what you do with Jesus indicates where you're at with God. Here's a nation of people who claim to be good grain. Here's a nation of people who claim fidelity to Yahweh, to the God of the Bible. And as Jesus comes, and as we read through this gospel, we shall see. And just as Theophilus has heard these things, we know there's some vivid pictures of how Jesus will expose in some of the most religious, most outwardly apparently righteous, faithful people, their chaff. He will divide and judge. He will divide and judge Simeon when he held Jesus as a baby in his arms. He said something similar. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Jesus will divide and judge. Jesus and as people interact with Jesus, where they're at, where their heart's at becomes clear. And that's true even today as we speak of Jesus, as we evangelize, as people are forced to encounter not the Jesus of their imagination, the Jesus who just sort of thumbs up everything and everybody, but the Jesus of Scripture exposes, reveals the hearts of men and where people are at with him. And John says he will he'll be that dividing force. He will be like the winnower's fork that separates the wheat from the chaff. Okay, what does he do once he divides and judges? Well, he does two things. He gathers and destroys. Jesus will gather and destroy. First we see he will gather the wheat into his barn. And there's a sense in which this is, again, the, the twofold emphasis of Jesus' coming, and even of Je- both of Jesus' coming. He's, he's come, according to him, to seek and save the lost. He's on a gathering mission. He's on a mission to find his flock. His father's given him a flock, and he's seeking that flock. And he's going out and finding the lost sheep, and he leaves the 99, and he goes and he finds the one that is lost. He's on a gathering mission, but turn to, turn to Luke 12. And in a good year or so, we'll get to here. Um, we'll see. I don't, I, don't, I, don't exact, I don't have it planned out that far ahead. Um, in Luke 12, verses uh, 49. Why did Jesus come? He came to seek and save the lost. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Verse 49. Also, though, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So did Jesus come to give peace or division? Yes. 
individually between you and God, Jesus gives peace. You and I were born in enmity, under wrath, children of wrath, under God's anger. And Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection offers us peace with God. But at the exact same time, that offer of peace that the gospel offers for us may very well set up hostility with the world. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. And so in a very real sense, Jesus comes to bring division. You read about Christians, men and women becoming Christians, especially in other cultures and other parts of the world where they have honor killings for such things. Jesus is not speaking in hyperbole here. He's, he's being literal. A man's enemies will be in his own household. And so Jesus will give peace. He will gather. And he will destroy. At the end of the age, when he returns, he will judge the world in righteousness. And so there's a very real warning here back in Luke chapter 3. A very real warning. Here is the one that John is pointing to. Okay, turn from your sin to him. And there's good news and there's bad news, right? The good news is here is the one who's come to gather. Here is the one who comes and says, come unto me all you who are weak and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I've come to seek the lost sheep in Israel. He's gathering his, his grain. But what about those who he doesn't gather? What about those who don't hear the call? What about those who aren't interested? Well, we read, the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And that's part of the reason why Jesus is such a lightning rod. You know, it is popular today to try to speak of him as a good teacher, as a good guy. None of that. Here is the one who will either be your Lord and Savior. Here is the one who will be your God. Here is the one who will be your substitute, your sacrifice for sin. Or here is the one who will judge you and personally condemn you to eternity in hell. Those, those, that's the Jesus of the Bible. You don't believe me? Turn, turn to Revelation 14. Turn to Revelation 14. One of the most horrific passages in Scripture and pictures of judgment. You know, it's, it's popular these days to speak of hell simply as separation from God. It is. It is. And the Bible will speak of hell that way. It's separation from God. If that's all you think hell is, you've got way too small of a picture of it of God's judgment. I think for some people that would come as a relief. You just sort of go off in a corner by yourself. Revelation 14, verse 9. And to another angel, a third following them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image, is, in his image and receives the mark on his forehead or hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. You get that? It's separation from God, but there's another sense in which God's right there. You're separated from his love, his mercy, his compassion, his patience, his kindness, his forgiveness. He's present in holiness. He's present in justice. He's present in righteousness. 
But ultimately, there is no one who escapes God. And this is the one that John is calling on people to turn to, to turn to with all their heart. Here is the one who is so much greater than him. Here is the one who's going to gather the flock, but be warned. If you won't turn from your sin to him, if you won't cling to the cross, if you won't trust in him, you will not escape him or his baptism and his fire and judgment. He will gather the grain and the chaff he will destroy. It's a sober warning. You know, the, the New Testament, and Jesus and John have more to say about hell and judgment. It's popular to think the Old Testament's the angry God of judgment. The mouth of our Lord and his apostles is more to be said on judgment than, than anywhere else in the Bible. We should be warned. Jesus will gather and Jesus will destroy. Next, we see John's fearless preaching cost him greatly. His gospel preaching points men to Jesus. His fearless preaching costs him greatly. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things he had done, added this to them, that he locked up John in prison. Now, Luke here is breaking chronological order. This doesn't happen until much later. The point here in telling this story is we've pretty much come to the end of John the Baptist as a central figure in the gospel. He will show up periodically in references. He'll send some disciples to Jesus, but he's a bit player. He's off the stage mostly. He's talked about, but as regards to the camera focusing on him, he's exiting stage right. And so Luke is summarizing and bringing to an end his ministry. Here's what happened to him. The reason why I say that is we know, especially from the other Gospels, that after Jesus was baptized, John was still ministering for a while, for nearly a year. But Luke wants us to know not just that John was a preacher of repentance from sin, that he was a preacher pointing to Christ, but that he was fearless. And his fearlessness and his boldness cost him much. Cost him much. Now, the scenario is that Herod was the Tetrarch of Galilee, and he had, he had married his brother's wife. And John the Baptist publicly rebuked Herod publicly rebuked Herod. We get, we get a clear wording of it in Mark 6.18. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful that you have your brother's wife. I want to pause, especially in our election season with politics being so high, that there is absolutely a place for us to call unjust laws unjust. There is absolutely a place for us to, to identify what is corrupt and wrong, to celebrate what is right. But I've seen people use John the Baptist in this, this example as if it's justification for us to follow in his footsteps, for us to rail against our leaders. Quickly, I just want to make one or two observations. One, John's a prophet of God. A prophet of God sent to the theocratic nation of Israel. And in that office, John is qualified to reprove and rebuke the king. Secondly, there's not an indication anywhere that John was caustic, snide, sarcastic, or rude. And so absolutely, if you're, if you're friends with me on Facebook, you will see that I periodically will, will post things expressing my disapproval of certain policy, especially as it relates to abortion, 
and laws like that. But please don't use John the Baptist as, as, as a justification for mocking, ridiculing, and not showing honor to our leaders. It, it simply won't do. A, you're not a prophet of God sent to a theocratic nation of God. And B, John's never caustic, sarcastic, or rude. So that's, that's for free. We're moving on. Um, and, it, and, it, and it costs John his freedom and ultimately his life. Because, because he was bold and fearless, because he was not afraid to directly rebuke the king, he's arrested, spends a year or so in jail, and then he's beheaded. Now that's not here in this text, but again, Luke reminding Theophilus of the things he's heard, that's got to be rolling around in his mind. And so we've seen the entrance. I mean, John's here is just a flash in the pan in Luke's gospel. He enters, we get this center on who he is, what he's about, and now the baton is passing. Now the baton is passing, and now Jesus takes center stage, and he stays center stage for the rest of Luke's gospel. Let's, let's quickly look at the second part. We've seen the culmination of John's ministry. Now the fulfillment of John's ministry. The fulfillment of John's ministry. What I mean is, everything that John was predicting, everything that John said was coming, is now here. It's culminated, and it is fulfilled. And we see it in the baptism of Jesus. Another Interesting note here is what John, what Luke is interested in is not Jesus' baptism, but what happens afterwards. What happens afterwards? You'll notice that even in the writing. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, so where are we? We're some point after, immediately following Jesus' baptism. But before we can get there, I think we need to ask a question. Why was Jesus baptized? Because remember, we've studied this. What was John's baptism for? It was a call people to repent sincerely of their sin. It was a baptism of repentance. And so and he'd, and he'd call people out who weren't sincere in their repentance. You, you Don't you do this unless you're really repentant, really sincere. So why was Jesus baptized? Did, was he a sinner that needed to repent? No. In fact, I think that's part of the reason why God the Father speaks here. Now, Luke doesn't fully solve the mystery, but I think Matthew 3 sheds some light to it. And in Matthew 3, we actually get the conversation that took place between Jesus and John the Baptist when he went to be baptized. In Matthew 3, 13 to 15, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you have come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So the, the logic is John the Baptist says, you're greater than I am. Shouldn't I be the one sitting under your right? How on earth can I perform a rite or a ritual to you? How can I give you a baptism of repentance? You are greater than I. And Jesus' answer helps us understand why he was baptized. Let it be for now. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why was Jesus baptized? He was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Not only does Jesus on the cross pay the penalty for your and my sin, not only on the cross does he, does he get what we deserve for our sin, what you deserve for your sin, the wrath that I was talking about that will burn and devour, he drank that cup full strength. He absorbed that wrath. But throughout his life, he... He actively obeys God and provides for us the righteousness that, that 
we otherwise would lack. So the cross removes our debt. Jesus' life fulfills all righteousness. This is why Jesus couldn't come down for the crucifixion, say, you know, the Thursday before the crucifixion. He fulfills all righteousness. Why is Jesus baptized? And here are your blanks. Jesus is baptized by John on our behalf. On our behalf. Jesus is baptized because the people whose life he is living for, he is providing a perfect sinless life. He's living for his people. He's identifying with his people. They would need to be baptized, so he gets baptized. They would need to repent of their sins, so he comes forward and receives this baptism. He's baptized on our behalf. The Savior, this one who is greater than John, we see his humility and his obedience. I mean, we've just exalted him up. The greatest of the Old Testament prophets, the greatest man ever born of women, says, I can't even untie his sandal. This one stoops so low for you and for me that he publicly is baptized, baptism of repentance, because that's what his people need. That's what his people need from him, and that's what he provides for them. He humbles himself that low. But what Luke's concerned with is the Trinitarian workings that then take place immediately afterwards. Notice how in this passage, all three members of the Trinity are present and functioning. Jesus is praying. The Holy Spirit is descending. And the Father is speaking. All three members of the Trinity active right here. And that's where Luke's zooming in on. So we've seen Jesus is baptized by John on our behalf. Second, He receives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers him for ministry. The Holy Spirit empowers him for ministry. The Holy Spirit descended bodily. What's the point of that? When you and I receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit does not descend bodily upon us like a dove. Because I don't don't think he does. If if you think he did, we should chat. Um, But he does here. Why? I think a lot of what's going on is a public recognition of Jesus. The Father in heaven wants the people around to know something special is going on, in part to make it clear this isn't just another penitent sinner coming forward. This is someone special. This is something special. Jesus received the Holy Spirit. Just turn over to chapter 4 briefly. As the empowerment for ministry... And Luke will pick this theme up just in the next chapter in 4.14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And Jesus' ministry is empowered by the Spirit. We saw previously that Jesus had to learn. Jesus was studying his Bible. Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. And once Jesus receives the Holy Spirit, that's when we see him working miracles. That's when we see him evidencing supernatural knowledge. And so as as our prophet, priest, and king, he receives the empowerment of the Spirit from ministry. And third and finally, the Father publicly testifies to Jesus. This is truly remarkable. The Father publicly testifies to Jesus. A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And this testimony from the Father accomplishes three things. Three things. First, identification. Identification. We've already seen Jesus identify God the Father as his Father in chapter 2. Don't you know I must be about my Father's work? Here, the Father identifies him as the Son. You are my beloved Son. Lest there be any doubt, 
God the Father goes on record, no, no, this is my son. This one is my son. Jesus has identified the father as his father. The father now identifies the son as his son. This, this, this verbal witness of the father publicly identifies him. Again, what, what God has done, he did not do in a corner. And what Jesus called on men to believe, he didn't call them to believe with a blind faith. God provided evidence. He provided testimony. And here the father goes on record with identification. Jesus is the son of God. Two, what else does it accomplish? Commendation. Commendation. Not only is he the son, this is his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. Jesus is the beloved by the Father. So we know who he is, and we know his relationship to the Father. He's the Son of God. Not just is he the Son of God, he's the beloved Son of God, the pleasing Son of God. And third, vindication. Vindication. Lest anyone think that Jesus is a sinner, you can... thought about this earlier, in the same way that when Jesus was presented in the temple to be ransomed back according to the law. Because according to the law, the children were sinful and they had to be bought back from God. God raises up a prophet to make it clear, and this is not a sinner. Here, Jesus comes forward publicly and receives a baptism of repentance. You can imagine later in his ministry, as he claims sinlessness, as he claims perfection, that someone might come and say, Oh, no, no, wait a second. I was there. You publicly, I saw you repent, Jesus. I saw you publicly repent of your sins. Well, anyone who saw Jesus get baptized heard this voice. And, and Luke doesn't give us the explanation that Matthew does. But Luke makes it clear, whatever is going on here, the Jesus' baptism is not. Here's a sinner repenting. How do we know? This is my beloved son, says the father, with whom I am well pleased. If Jesus were a sinner, God the Father could never say such a thing. This vindicates Jesus publicly. I'm going to call the worship team up as we prepare for our final song. I want to just close by summarizing what we've seen here. John the Baptist goes before the Lord. And he, and he brings the law, and he brings a call to repentance from sin. And he challenges the people in their sincerity. And then, in his final act in Luke's gospel, he just points to Jesus. He's greater than I am. He's got a greater ministry than I have. But he also warns them, as much as Jesus has come to seek and save, he has come to destroy. And that's really the decision and the choice you need to make where you are. What will you do with Jesus? Will you, will you let him gather you? Will you turn to him? Or will you be destroyed by him? Now, this is good news. It may sound harsh, but John is preaching in the text, good news. This is good news. If you will turn to Jesus, he will turn to you. If you will, if you will cling to him, he will gather you in. And we don't know how long judgment will tarry. We don't know how long until God's wrath finally comes upon this world. But today is the day of salvation. And so I just challenge you, if, if you're not certain where you're at with the Lord, if you haven't thought through these things, to, to please prayerfully do so. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to me. Don't, don't, don't think you can escape him. You will not. But why escape him when you can run to him? Let's pray and then we'll sing. Lord God, we just pray that you would um, give grace.
that we would be those who trust and turn to Jesus, that by your good pleasure, he would continue to gather in his flock and keep us safe. In Jesus' name, amen.